Once upon a time, there was a little business trying to get off the ground. And it started to grow and it became profitable and the name of that little, little business was Netflix. And in the year 2000, the people at Netflix decided that it might be a good time to sell the company now that it was profitable. And so they, they had a meeting and they went into a boardroom. And if the conglomerate lore is to be believed, legend has it, they were laughed out of that boardroom. And that boardroom belonged to Blockbuster. Blockbuster sat there with a tremendous amount of assurance, thinking to themselves, we're not going anywhere. Yes, you are. We've been working through the letter to 1 John, and uh, John has been encouraging the church to live in such a way, position their hearts and minds in such a way, that they would have joy in a world that is continually draining joy, that we wouldn't tether our hearts and our minds and our hopes to Blockbuster, (laughs) metaphorically speaking. Blockbuster thought they weren't going anywhere. Uh, Rome didn't think they were going anywhere. Many other world powers and governments over the course of human history didn't think they were going anywhere. Lots of business moguls didn't think they were going to go anywhere. Cultural thought leaders. It's all Blockbuster. And our text today is 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read from uh, verse 15 to 17. A portion of this text as we continue through the letter, that is asking a provocative question. What do we love? And where is what we love going? 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its lusts. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. This portion of the letter requires massive reflection, more than we can do this morning, more than I'll ever be able to unpack. So what I hope to do is give you three questions. The three questions I think this section provokes us to ask ourselves is, Where in my life might I be loving the wrong thing? And secondly, where in my life might I love a good thing in the wrong idolatrous way? And then lastly, what will it look like in those areas of my life? To love like God loves. Where in my life might I be loving the wrong thing? Where am I loving a good thing in the wrong way? And what will it look like for me to love as God loves? So let's just work our way through this text as you can sort of reflect on those three questions uh, this morning. It starts out by all this talk about not loving the world. What does that even mean? Because John 3.16, one of the most notable texts in all of Scripture, that people who don't even go to church know John 3.16, if they watch sport games and they see the reference there, says, for God so loved the world. And here it says, hey, don't love the world. What is going on? What does it mean? Well, there's 
There's three, there's three words in the Greek that could be used for world. One of them is G, and that's not it here. G is where we get our English word geology or geography or geo. And it means nature and the material. And it obviously doesn't mean that we're not supposed to love nature. God loves nature. He created nature. Genesis chapter 1 is a, is a poetic expression of what God literally did. And Genesis 1 is constructed as a song. It's repetitive and there's phrases that are, that are balanced. And it's God dancing over nature that he loves and, he, and, and that he creates. So it, it can't be don't love that. There are religions in the world that are kind of like forsake the material and detach from the natural and only become spiritual. But that's not Christian faith. Um, so it's not that word. The second word that could be here but isn't to talk about the world is oikimene. And oikimene means inhabited land. You know, the city, civil life. And it, it, it does not mean don't love civil, civil life and civic life and the city because God, when he incarnated in Jesus Christ... He spent 30 years doing beautiful work. So he was in the trades. The maker came and became a maker. And he used his craft for 30 years. And, and, and God saw this as a beautiful and fit thing to do. So the Christian is not called to somehow withdraw from civic life and vocation and, not, and see all of these things as just sort of secular and not important. It doesn't mean that at all. We want to engage all of our skills and abilities and talents and giftings to the glory of God and um, do good art. You know, this is what it's... What, so it doesn't mean don't love nature and the material. It doesn't mean withdraw from civic life and don't get involved in the city or your neighborhood. Uh, the word here is cosmos. And when we hear cosmos, we think of outer space and galaxies because the philosophers predominantly applied the word cosmos, you know, Pythagoras and Plutarch, they predominantly talked about the cosmos in terms of sort of um, the ordering of the universe and the heavenlies. So that's the way we think about it. But cosmos means the way things are ordered. So you see, this portion of scripture is all a portion of scripture is all about do I love the way things are ordered by my God? Or do I love the way things are ordered in my culture, in my point in history? What is the order of things? And am I in love with the right order of things? So this is sort of how it begins and uh, to get us to consider what we love. And so let's, before we even go any further, just think about when John was writing this. We've got, there was an order of things. What was the order of things when he wrote this? It was Rome. What was Rome's order of things? When John said, don't love the order of things here. You can really see he doesn't blow it all out. He's expecting the church to get this letter and sit down and go, what are the order of things? What is the order of the world? And how should I not love it? He's expecting there to be some reflection and consideration of, of the scripture. He's expecting the mature believers to be teaching the young ones the scriptures so that they can look out at their culture with nuance and they can commend it wherever appropriate, and challenge it where they need to, walk in wisdom and the love and the ways of God. What was, it, what was the order of things in the first century? Power, the strong eat the weak. If you have the ability to have an advantage, take it. Silence, silence those who don't share your view. Wheels off, sex without borders. The culture was obsessed with sex. Absolutely obsessed with it. The, the world today is uh, no different at all. Uh, we're not 
We like to think of ourselves as progressive and advanced. It's sexually, we're not. It's the oldest thing in the world. I mean, there was more public orgies going on that people are aware of when John wrote this than you're, you and I are aware of happening in our, in, in our neighborhoods. It was, there was an order of things. Politics and of sex, the worship of the body, the worship of the, of the aesthetic wealth, wheels off greed, sort of like a predatory kind of a greed where you didn't share your wealth. You kept getting richer, and there was this massive chasm between ridiculous opulence and poverty. And people were kind of like, this is fine, you know. Of the power to, you know, I had, the, I had the ability to make this wealth, so good for me. You have the ability. You didn't make it, so too bad for you. I mean, I don't need to share the wealth and make sure that everybody who's in my employ benefits so that we're all somehow flourishing together. My flourishing is all that matters. This is ancient Rome. Right? There, was, there was an order of things. Status and identity, your value garnered by your last name, your family, your nationality, your vocation, your education, your reputation in the city, your prominence. And all of this, in the culture at the time when John was writing this, was basically sort of, you know, live your life swept away by the, by the, the Pax Romana of Rome, which is a phrase that meant peace of Rome, you know. They celebrated the peace. They came through a thousand years of totalitarianism, regime, and oppression. They just kind of get swept away with it, with the philosophy at the time, which was, listen, these gods are crazy. They're firing lightning bolts all over the place, and it's silly poetry, and you can't believe in it. So forget about the divine. We will, sell, we will save ourselves through our philosophia, philosophy, the love of wisdom, philo, love, sophia, wisdom. We will save ourselves through our politics. We will save ourselves through civic life. We will save ourselves through our modernity and our wisdom and our education. We will educate our way out of all of our problems. This was ancient Rome. That was the first century. Here's a question. What is the order of things in the 21st century? I mean, in some ways, things are different in beautiful and, and wonderful ways. In some ways, things are quite different. And in other ways, they're strangely exactly the same. And the reason is because the world has always been as it is. And the world will always be in some way as it is. You see, that's the purpose of this letter. If Christians don't grasp what I just said, which is highly offensive because as moderns, we're very intelligent people and we're evolving and we're getting past all this stuff and we just educate and all of our problems away. But what John is trying to get the Christians to understand is if you don't understand that the world has always been the way it is and in some form it will always be the way that it is, you're always going to be surprised and worried and freaked out and anxious and depressed by the way that it is. It's paradoxical. That's the way that it is. You can find beauty and pain together all the time. They could then. We can now. It will be this way a thousand years from now. Because weirdly, because weirdly there have been many advancements that are glorious and good and should be commended you know, through human achievement. And like, there's a lot of beauty in the world that we're not trying to sort of ignore. Christians aren't you know, knuckle-draggers and sad and weeping all the time. So there's a lot of beauty that we can acknowledge, but we've got to realize the order of things is always passing away. 
He says, don't love it. Verse 15, don't love it. Love is, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard the phrase agape. If you're new to the Bible or you're new to um, the Christian faith, you're exploring Christian faith, agape is, a, is often translated love, but it's got a large lexical meaning and it, it can't just, it's not a set of feelings. It means that there's an inward compulsion. You're compelled towards and you are inclined towards and you have this tremendous pleasure in and you are and, and you just esteem this thing worthy. All of these things are involved in this word love. It's why Jesus agaped us. For God so agaped the world. For God so, and, and that world meaning that God wasn't in love with the way things were. He was in love with his creation, us. That God was so compelled and moved and drawn in pleasure to, to reconcile us back to himself. The glory of the divine beyond just the material. That he was compelled to move. He incarnated himself. He moved into the neighborhood. So it's this sort of this driving compulsion to move towards. So the text is saying we ought not to have this driving compulsion to move towards the order of the way that things are in the culture. In this, without, sort of, without sort of thinking about it. Again, I'm not saying there isn't beauty in the culture, but there are things that are absolutely passing away because they're not the ways of God. And we ought not to be sort of drawn towards those kinds of things. It would be as though a frog jumps into a pond and it, as it's swimming under the water, it sees a fish and the frog says to the fish, oh my goodness, the water is nice today. And the fish is like, what's water? Because from the frog's point of view, it's kind of jumped into this experience. But from the fish's point of view, this is just how it always is. I don't even know what water is. And so there are, we're all sort of swimming in cultural waters. That's all the way it's always been. And so John is saying, church, my friends, my friends, don't just get swept away in the cultural waters. We ought not to love these things. There are things we can take beauty and pleasure in, but there's a lot of things that we, ought not to, that we ought not to love. So he says, don't love it. Our hearts, to borrow from a modern philosopher, James Smith, who wrote a book called We Are What We Love. He says, our hearts are like a compass that are constantly drawn towards magnetic north. The ways of God ought to be our magnetic north. United to Christ by the indwelling power of his spirit, our love for his word, as we gather together and we revel in it and we read it and we go home and we meditate on it. it becomes a fixture and a formative power in our life it's like magnetic north it's recalibrating the heart the desires the passions the appetites this is what it ought to be we're supposed to love the right things um, if you look at verse 16 he starts to unpack this further the, the order of things that we ought not to be loving and he uses the word lust and he keeps using it uh, all the sort of things that are in the order the way that things are ordered that have to that are Lusts, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And when you hear the word lust, because of the way that we predominantly use it today, we think about sex and sensuality, and it definitely does include that. But it's far broader uh, than that. Lust in the Greek here is epithemia. When you think of something being epic, it being like the central thing that everything is orbiting around in a, in, a literary, in a literary classical sense, when you say something is an epic, that adjective means there's one hero in the middle and everything's orbiting around the hero. Epic. The Bible is an epic. And so epithemia, the lust, means the, the, the proclivity of my mind and my emotions and my heart is constantly orbiting around this thing. Every time I'm not 
actually physically thinking about or doing something, it's like a default. I just go back there because it's arrested my attention, my very soul. And so he's saying there is sort of this force of gravity, like a centrifugal pull on the soul that draws us towards the things that we love. So are we loving the wrong things or good things in the wrong way or the right things? It's this inordinate, obsessive kind of a focus. It's, it's a longing to have your will. And so um, it keeps drawing us back to it, whatever it is, every time we're not physically preoccupied with something else. Right now, our car, for some reason, decided that every time we get out and come back in and turn the key on, it's 4 o'clock. January 1st. So every time we get in, it just resets. Turn the key. January 1st, 4 o'clock p.m. Every time. We always joke about it. We'll run errands all day and go, wow, that only took 16 minutes. That is epithemia. Oh, I'm not, we're not doing anything right now. I'm not occupied right now. I'm not, oh, well, I'm, now I'm back to this. And you see that, that that sort of lust plays out in three ways. The flesh. You know, being governed by the senses and the sensual or the eyes, the place in which all of our envisioning and imagining and worldview and everything happens, or the pride of life. So let's sort of think about these for a couple of minutes. Um, you start with the flesh. You see, the, 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 the flesh here is it's the opposite of like this outward-facing, loving and giving posture. Because the epithemia has curved us in on the gratification of the self. So we're not giving, we're consuming. We're devouring. We are carnivorous. This is the posture. That's what it means by the lust of the flesh. It's like, what do I got to do to gratify my soul that is at unrest right now? So when the soul is at unrest, the mind of the heart is somehow saddened. or The, the flesh says, I'll come to the rescue. And that can look like a lot of the, the fulfilling of the senses. It can look like sex, the fixation with sex, right? whether it's pornography or, or otherwise, trying to fulfill ourselves sexually, the curving in of the self. How has God ordered our sexuality? When we look at the scriptures, he's ordered it, that it's not the totality of who we are. Our culture has ordered it like it is the highest, most important part of who we are. That is going to be the conversation, probably, for the rest of our natural lifetime. That our sexuality is somehow the, this is the essence of who I am. But the way that God has ordered it is that it's not. It is an important part of who you are. It is a beautiful part of who you are. But it is not the totality of who you are. It is being misordered. And so, when we look at how God has ordered sex in the scriptures... He's given it such that if you are a single person, there is tremendous dignity for you. Because you're not somehow living some sort of unsatisfied and unfulfilled life where the predominant goal is to somehow um, express yourself and be fulfilled sexually. Because that's not the highest goal of the human experience. So what God did was God put sex within a context where you have to give your whole self away. So what God has done, he said, if you're not giving yourself away, which is the opposite of epithemia, curved in, it is giving yourself away, I'm going to give all of who I am emotionally and physically and sexually to someone who I've given myself to in totality, financially and in every other conceivable way. 
God put sex within the covenant of the marriage between the man and the woman because God himself is neither male nor female, but the essence of who God is, God is, is male and female in the sense that he is spirit, not in the way that we understand him, but the full expression of who he is. He says, let us make mankind in our image, Genesis 1, 26. And he puts it in this way so that the expression of our sexuality is not somehow some sort of an insertion or validation of who we are. So firstly, if you are so, so singleness for the Christian is a, is a, a divine dignified way to live. Because God's highest and best is not marriage with children. That is, a beautiful, uh, that is beautiful in the heart and the, in the mind of God. And some will have lives like that, but not all of us will. And that's not the goal of, that's not the highest human experience. If it were, Jesus would have gotten married and had some children. But I think what we see in Jesus is humanity, humanity fulfilled in a beautiful way. And so there is a dignity to singleness that is given in the scripture, understanding our sexuality, that is actually not afforded in our culture, because the way that our culture understands it, it is, this is the highest, the most central thing about me. It must be somehow expressed and walked out. But the way in which we understand it through the scriptures is actually, this is a posture of giving. But I'm not just giving myself sexually, I'm giving absolutely everything to myself in an irreversible covenant commitment, a promise of future love. This thing called marriage, which both culturally inside and outside of the church, we've made a disastrous mess of. So marriage today is a bit of a joke, but marriage in the heart and the mind of God is how he has ordered things. But that's not how our culture has ordered. So we must now consider what are the ways in which I'm sort of loving the wrong thing or in the wrong way. But sex, of course, is just one, one small example. This also applies to food and drink and living in a culture that survives on our constant sort of con- uh, consuming of goods. So food is good and beautiful, but I can love it in the wrong way. By going to it as a way of gratifying my flesh to tell my soul everything will be okay. Drink is a good thing if you're celebrating with wine the goodness of God as you see all through the Old Testament. Or you're gathering together with family and you're celebrating God's goodness and your love for one another. And so... Um, and, and you're not getting drunk and going into debauchery through drinking in this way, but that it's something that can be good and beautiful, but it can also be a disaster. The same is true of material things. Christian faith is not anti the material, where we don't just all sell all of our houses and our clothes and live in cardboard boxes and wear beige until we die because we don't like fashion and beauty. Our God is not like that. We can beautify our homes and our spaces and, our, and, and ourselves as a glorious way of sort of reflecting the creative God that we serve. But if we don't love it the way God loves it and we love it in the wrong way, it is wheels off endless consumerism. The only way to keep our unsatisfied selves happy is to click to add to cart, have the packages come to the front door endlessly because there is something inside us that is not right. And we have gone to this thing, the lust of the flesh, what will make me feel okay? I need a dopamine, dopamine hit to the brain. I know I got to buy something new. And it's just the endless cycle of consuming. Because this is what lust is. It is consuming. Constant, endless, chronic consuming. When you look at the lust of the eyes, this is where um, the center of our, of, our, of our envisioning for our life happens. It's where we sort of walk out the envisioning of our lives. Jesus called the eye 
um, sort of this, this window into the soul where he says in Matthew 6 that if the eye is good, the whole body is good. If the eye is evil, the whole body is evil. And Jesus said that as a way of getting us to see that we can look at things in a, in a beautiful way, in an appreciative way, but we can also look at them, look at them in, a, in a devouring way. The eye is the lens. What is the order? What is the way in which I see things? Am I discipled by the culture or am I discipled by God's word? When, how do I, when, I, when I look at justice and injustice, what do I think about it? And why do I think those things? When I, th- when I see the poor and I'm going down King Street and I see someone on the street, what do I think about that? What rises in my heart? What actions do I take? I mean, how, how is all of this being ordered? How do I understand justice and mercy? How do I see it? How do I see God's call of compassion for the poor in the city? How do I walk these things out? How do I see my life? As I was talking about earlier, about sexuality. How do I see myself and my life and my body? Is my body a temple to glorify God? Or is it a, is, is it a, a tool for pleasure by cultural standards? And then lastly, he goes on and says, don't love you know, the order, the, the pride of life. This is this empty swagger, the vainglory of you know, tethering ourselves to things that are passing away. All sorts of good things, but loving them in the wrong way. Family and friends and relationships and houses and nice dinners with loved ones and all good things, like good things. But the, the pride of life is this empty swagger where we elevate these things and give them a graduation ceremony where now the letters after my name and my education and the school I graduated from or, or that I didn't graduate from or these fools are book smart, but I'm street smart. The vainglory of swagger, the pride of life, tethering our sort of sense of identity to something that's, and it's all blockbuster. It's not lasting. And so you move on to verse 17, and it says that it's passing away. Well, it doesn't mean the natural world is passing away. Spoiler alert, God doesn't hate creation. He's going to restore it. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, I mean, that's the ultimate teaser trailer. You guys hear me preach this incessantly, and I do it on purpose, because the cultural narrative of the Christian faith is we die, go to heaven, it's evacuation, the world blows up, the sun burns out, it's all over, and that's the end of things. That's not where this is headed. Whatsoever. God loves the material. He's restoring it. He's raising us from death to enjoy it. He will, <laughs> he will heal these bodies of ours that have a nasty habit of getting old and weak and dying. And we will have in the end what the, the, the glorious creator, our God, our loving God, desired in the beginning. But he says it's passing away. But those who do the will of God, they abide forever. This here we see now. This is the trajectory of our life and our days now. I'm either on a trajectory of life with God or a trajectory of separation from Him. And so what the text is doing here is it is highlighting the natural outworkings of what we love. If I unite my heart, my mind, my ethics, my practices to an order of things that in a matter of time is passing away, I am also passing away. But if I unite my heart, my mind, my ethics, my practices to an order of things that is going to abide forever, I am also abiding forever. This is liberating freedom now to give our lives away to be ministers in the city of love and of care because suddenly we don't need all of our time and all of our money and all of our energy and all of our everything for ourselves. We are liberated to give it away because this life is quite simply not all that there is. See, if there is no God, none of this makes sense. If Jesus Christ didn't raise from the grave and there's no God, it doesn't make sense. What makes sense is curate your own cosmos. 
Create your own way of doing things. Like going through the bulk food section of worldviews. I'll take a bit of this. I don't like that. I like what the Bible says here, but I don't like what the Bible says there. I love the caring for the poor stuff. The sexual ethics seems antiquated. I like this part of the sermon. I don't like that part of the sermon. That makes more sense if there's no God. I mean, if, if there's no God, that makes sense. But if, there, if Jesus Christ did rise from the grave, and he is who he said he was, and we do have a God, then which is the more logical outworking of that reason and, and love? That I expect that God's going to bless my track? And just sort of condone whatever ordering I have ordered things? Or that I would bend my knee and trust that there is love and wisdom and flourishing in his way of ordering things? This is what the, the text begins to provoke us to see, the, the abiding forever and the glory and the, the beauty that there is in all of that. When a fly gets stuck against the glass and it's banging its head over and over and it's buzzing away over and over, it never stops and thinks to itself, what do I need? Is there another way to do this? What is truth? What is reality? What is my existence? The fly doesn't do it. It's just acting on impulse and instinct and it just bangs its head until it's dead in the window frame. And if there is no God, then we're not unlike the flies, kind of banging our heads against the thing that we wish we could change in the world. And if I could just, if I could just convert more people to my way of thinking about this issue, and we just bang our heads, and we bang our heads against it. But it's an exercise in futility, because somewhere, somebody else is banging their head to nudge the world in a direction that is the opposite of yours. My friends, this is the way the world has always been. It's the way the world will always be. And the only way to be people of joy and rest and love and not be swept away in worry with the way that it is is to step back and say, oh, am I loving the right order of things here? This is the wisdom of God's word. And I have good news. The scriptures announce to us that this world and our very lives are not only propelled from one end by a God of love and creative power as the Alpha, but this world and our lives are being pulled toward a glorious end by God the Omega, who had a goal for his creation in the beginning, and that's where this is all going. And he will accomplish it in the end. He has an order to things, and he's drawing us into his glorious order. And in a jaw-dropping contradiction of what we actually deserve, the perfect life of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, the divine resurrection of Jesus reconciles us to Him and fills us with His Spirit. And slowly but surely we resemble and reflect Him in the earth and in our neighborhoods because that's where everything is going. The restoration of our God, the wise and loving order of the things that are actually going to last for forever. And we in a humble, small, yet beautiful ways live these lives of love in our neighborhoods. This is what it will look like. What does it look like to love the right things? It's going to look like Jesus. It's going to look like you and I willing to have dinner with anybody. Giving dignity and love to everybody. Influenced by nobody. This was Jesus. Dignity for everyone. Love for everyone. Dinner with Anyone influenced by no one. He already had a father, and so do you and I. And so, this is the good news of the gospel.
This is the good news that Jesus Christ has united us with our Father, and now, because of that glorious truth, we begin to reflect Him and emulate Him in the world. We do not have a God who does not sympathize with our weakness. He doesn't leave us powerless. He doesn't command us to turn from the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and then leave us to it. Jesus Christ, our High Priest, He empathizes with us. He entered into life with us. He has overcome the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life for us. I close the sermon with this. He did it in Matthew chapter 4. As he was in the wilderness and the enemy, the, the attacker of our souls, came to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and said, I see that you're hungry. Why don't you just gratify your flesh? Stop seeking your Father. Gratify your flesh. Turn the stones to bread. The lust of the flesh. And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of my father. And then the enemy of our souls tries to get him with the lust of the eyes. Oh, Jesus, you want to inaugurate your kingdom. Well, because of the sin of mankind, all of these kingdoms are my kingdoms. And I will give you my kingdom. I will give you the kingdom you're after. You want a kingdom? I'll give you a kingdom. Kneel down and worship me, my order, my way of things. And Jesus says, it is written, worship God and him alone shall you serve. And after failing at getting Jesus to give in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the attacker of our souls goes to get Jesus to give in to the pride of life. And he does this by quoting the scriptures, misquoting them in the wrong way. And so the enemy of our souls takes the very word of God, Psalm 91, and misquotes it, misapplies it. And he says, oh, see, you want to make some claims of who you are. Well, why don't you just prove who you are? Why don't you just prove your identity right now? And why don't you cast yourself down off the top of the temple? Because it is written, the enemy says, He shall give his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. And to borrow the allegory from C.S. Lewis, it's like Jesus looked the enemy in the eye. And he said, don't quote the deep magic to me. I was there when it was written. This is our God. This is the Savior of our souls. Now, my friends, may we celebrate His grace. May we live into this new humanity. May we love Him, love our neighbor, and do the will of our God, abiding with Him forever. Amen. Let's pray.